right, so this morning we're going to have a scripture reading before the sermon rather than during the sermon. Uh, that will give Ryan a little bit more time to end his sermon. Oh, well, it's out now. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> so uh, our sermon text today comes from Genesis chapter 44, and I'll be reading through chapter 45, verse 15, starting in verse 1. Then he, that is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in your doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sacks to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hands the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose cup <clears throat> was found, in whose hand the cup was found, shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, Please let your servants speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, a child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him to, down to me, that I may set my eyes upon him. We said to the Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. 
when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one from me also, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your, fa- to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, to the sorrow of Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold (coughs) sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth, to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over and Lord of all his house, ruler over the land of all, all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me a Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come into poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is the mouth, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of, my, <clears throat> of all my honor in Egypt. And of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. 
and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. After this, his brothers talked with him. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. It stands forever. Amen. Yesterday, <clears throat> I was reading that as I was practicing, and I thought, that's really long. And so I texted Jason. I think he was having his daughter's uh, birthday party, and he read the text, will you preach for me, and had a heart attack. <laughs> and then he reread it. It just said, will you read the passage? So thank you, Jason. Uh, let me pray. Father, we praise you for your word. We know that... Um, there are so many things that can get in the way of our grasping your beautiful gospel. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray right now against those things that you would illumine the meaning of this passage to our hearts, open our eyes to see your beauty. Amen. Um, my wife leaned over and said, are you going to recap the story? So, uh, yes. It's a long one. Uh, I'm going to start with 37. Remember the story of Joseph is he's 17 has these dreams, has this code, he's on top of the world, his brothers kidnap him, sell him to Egypt, goes to Potiphar's house, rises into the ranks, and then Potiphar's wife uh, takes advantage of him, he flees and goes into prison in Egypt. And there he rises to the top again, uh, he hears and interprets the two dreams of the cupbearer cup bearer and the baker, and uh, eventually he interprets Pharaoh's dream, two dreams, and then he's made the head of everything. Pharaoh's like, you're the guy. So at age 30, he's made a second in command of Pharaoh over everything. And for seven years, he oversaw the collection, the gathering in of the abundance. And now we're in the second seven years, somewhere around two years in. He's in his maybe like late 30s, um, Joseph is, and we have this situation. Now, the subplot is these brothers have come to Egypt now. This is their second time, really their third, because they had to come back after leaving. The first trip, remember, they came, and um, they left Benjamin with Jacob. They come. They don't know that Joseph's still alive. They beg for, they ask for food, and Joseph says, you have to leave Simeon here bound up until you come back with Benjamin. And so last week, we saw how when they ran out of the grain, Jacob says, hey, go back, get more grain. And that's when the brothers, especially Judah, they say, no, like we're not leaving and going back to Egypt without our brother Benjamin. So at the end of that passage, we see them do that. They come in, they have this amazing feast. Uh, Joseph still keeps his, uh, his identity secret, goes away and, and weeps and comes back. So our passage just simply picks up where that left off. They've had this party, they get Simeon, they get to keep Benjamin, Life is good. They get the donkeys loaded with tons of grain, and they start heading back north to Canaan, and they're excited. And then this weird, evil trick overcomes them. And that is one of the servants of Joseph comes out and says, what have you done? And accuses them of stealing this silver chalice. It's this thing that not only would Joseph have drank in out of, but the idea being that this person in Egypt would have also practiced divination. But this is a very important object or artifact, and one of them must have stole it. 
And of course, Judah and the brothers are incredulous. They're like, there's no chance that any of us stole this. In fact, I'll tell you what, you find it in one of our bags, and here's what you can do. Kill that brother and take the rest of us into captivity forever. And it's really interesting how the servant says, I'll do what you say, but he tweaks it. I'm not going to actually kill that person. I'll just take that person into captivity for Joseph and let the others go free. So they've kind of got this agreement. They start searching the bag, oldest to youngest, and they come to Benjamin's bag, and there it is. And the brothers are just undone. They tear their clothes. In the Old Testament, when you're upset, you tear your clothes. I've not seen anyone do that in modern times. So they do this. They're upset. They go back into Egypt, back to Joseph's presence. And that's where Judah begins to just unload and tell the story of why this is all happening and what's going on. And he gets all the way to the end of his story. And he finally just says, here's what I want you to do. Send Benjamin home. Take me. Now, imagine Joseph seeing this incredible transformation in the brother, Benjamin, who, or uh, Judah. Did I say Benjamin earlier? This is Judah talking to Joseph about sending Benjamin home. Judah is now saying, take me in, Judah, in Benjamin's place. Joseph, of course, remembering all those years earlier, a completely different scenario is undone. And that's when he reveals himself. I'm your brother. And they have this incredible, incredible uh, reunion. In fact, at the end of our passage, they're hugging and they're kissing and they're talking to one another. And it's this beautiful picture. And I want to just speak this morning a little bit about repentance because I think this is a great picture. What we've been saying this whole series is, yes, this story is true. And yes, there are principles to learn from this story but we also would, would recognize that Joseph is a type of Christ, that the entire drama of redemption is constantly hinting at who Jesus is and what he will be like. And we can learn a lot from these lived out stories about how we too accomplish the redemption that Jesus has for us and what it would look like. And what we really find here and what we have to wrestle with is this trick and then the revealing of Joseph and how they play out in uh, the life of Judah, the life of the brothers, the life of Israel. So I want to talk about repent. I want to read you a quote from the front about repentance. And the author of this work, The Cloister Walk, says, Repentance is not a popular word these days, but I believe that any of us recognize it when it strikes us in the gut. Repentance is coming to our senses, seeing suddenly what we've done that we might not have done, or recognizing that the problem is not in what we do, but in what we've become. And, and I think, I'm not saying it's a perfect definition of repentance, but what I'm wanting us to see in this story is Judah wasn't ready for who Joseph was. Right, Joseph, to reveal himself, needed Judah and the brothers to, to be in a place, in a position where he could reveal themselves. And I know they're going through the Westminster Confession, and we talk about effectual calling. But Jesus, before he reveals who he is, doesn't he send his spirit? He opens the eyes of the elect that we become ready for repentance unto life. That when I say ready, I mean we become, there's actual processes in our lives that prepare us for that moment where we understand that we need a Savior and that Jesus is our Savior. But not only at conversion, 
I think one of the mistakes we make in our Christian lives is we kind of relegate that stuff toward our, our first conversion experience or our moment of, of recognizing Christ, but then we try to live out the rest of our lives out of our own effort. And yet the scriptures are clear that we need to come back to that place over and over. And so we're going to explore that. What's going on in this story? Why is it happening? And the three, the three things I want to process, what was, what is, and what will be in regards to this Joseph story. So starting with what was, um, it's just processing Joseph as he thinks about his own story has been really interesting because we saw last week in the passage where when he sees Benjamin, he has compassion. He's overcome with who Benjamin is and that Benjamin's actually there and Benjamin's actually safe. And we talked a little bit about how certainly Joseph would have experienced tons of different emotions, right? Like, thankful that Benjamin's alive, but also probably a sense of, like, that could have been me. I could have had a different life. My story could have been different. And maybe there's even some nostalgia. Like, I would have loved to have known my father, like Benjamin seems to get to know Jacob. And all these things are rushing through. But in our passage, we find Joseph is very, very clear about the past. And so the two things I want to describe with what was is we have two ways of viewing, viewing our own stories. We have one way of viewing our story is just how it feels, the data from it before we come to Christ. But I think in Scripture we find over and over we're supposed to start seeing our story differently, what was, after we come to Christ. Right? So look at Judah. Judah comes into this scenario. He's on a path. He's on this journey, isn't he? Uh, back in chapter 37, he didn't really put up too much of a fight about sending Joseph into captivity. And then you come full circle to where now he's telling this story to Joseph. They, they come into town and he recounts what was. He says, Lord, please let your servant speak in your ear. And he begins to unpack the story. And as he does so, he talks about his father and how he, his father has this child in old age. And he begins to just explain all of this story to Joseph, who of course is aware, but it's probably incredibly soothing for Joseph to even hear Judah recount such intimate details about loving the father, caring for his grief. The backstory is obviously Judah has been aware of the grief he caused Jacob. I mean, remember, Jacob or Judah and the brothers caused the grief. They took Joseph and sold him. So here Judah is sort of reconciling. I love my father, and I, I want to protect him, yet there's this unnamed sin he's still wrestling with. In fact, in our, in our passage, he fought for the first time describes, it's in verse 28, he's recounting Jacob saying, surely he has been torn to pieces. That's the first time any of the brothers have named the actual harm or at least the perceived harm Jacob saw of, of Joseph. Before it was just our brother died, and now it's this detail. And so what we find in Judah is he's coming to this place where for him to make everything better, he's got to take matters into his own hands. And what he decides to do is he decides he's going to step up, put his life at risk, and send Joseph, or send Benjamin back home. I think, and I want to just argue that he's not yet fully aware of who Joseph is. Now, that's not really an argument. That's obvious, right? He doesn't understand who Joseph is. He doesn't understand the story. He's not aware of his 
full past. He's not really naming anything. He's just trying to fix this problem the way he knows how. And it's a beautiful offer, and it obviously melts Joseph. But I'm going to take us to Galatians for just a moment as Paul begins to explain why sometimes we get caught up in our old methods in the present context of being saved. He says, I mean this, that as long as a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under a guardian and a manager until the date set by his father. In the same way, we, Jews, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What is he saying? That, that if you are a child in a, in a household, you follow the rules of the father and of the household until you're old enough to become free. And then he says, when time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those and to set us free. We cry, Abba, Father. And what, what Paul's doing in Galatians is he's trying to tell the Galatians and the Judaizers who have infiltrated them, like, do you know your story? You're still living out this past as if Jesus Christ hasn't come. But Jesus Christ, in fact, has come and set you free. And so we look at our story, and, Ju and Judah is appealing to Joseph on the basis of, like, I'm going to make this better. I'm going to fill the gap. I'm going to try to fix this, though he's never yet named the particularity of the sin. Because to say, because we killed Joseph, would change the complexity of everything. His his now offering his life as a sacrifice would not even come close to appeasing that cost. So he's keeping that past sort of blanketed in this narrative that looks like he's getting really, really close, but he hasn't quite gotten there yet. And then we have Joseph's response. And this will bring us to kind of what is. Joseph, when he hears Judah, is melted. And, and again, Joseph's emotions keep coming out. He says, this is uh, his response, make everyone go out from me. So he sends, I assume, just a room full of people away. It's just he and his brothers, right? The 12 are finally together. And he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And it's just this intimate, sweet, like, you, I've asked you about your kind of your old man, but now I'm really wanting to know how's our father? How's our family? How are we? Like he's, he's naming like I am your brother and you are safe. That is what is. That is the truth. And when he does that, in verse 3, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? And his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. And last week we talked about that, that sort of tremble, that sort of amazing awe that when you're in the presence of Jesus, and, and I know Joseph is not Jesus, but when we are in the presence of Jesus, there is this trembling and this awe. And I think Judah and the brothers experienced that reality. That's the truth of what is. Now, why would Joseph, I wanna, here's what I want to ask you. Why did Joseph do the trick? Are y'all bothered by the trick, anyone? Are y'all bothered by the cup and the, and the thing? I was. Um, when I first read it, I just thought, come on, just get to it. Like, just tell them who you are. They'll be sad, and you'll have a party. But the problem is, God in his grace, and actually the beauty is, God in his grace 
wants us to come to the full recognition of what we've done to a degree because it makes what Christ has done more lovely. See, there's this verse, verse 16. Jake, Judah, just in a bit of arrogance, is like, remember, if you find the cup, kill that person and keep the rest of us forever. This is super arrogant. They find it, and he rips his clothes. And in verse 16, he says, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Uh, Robert Alter, who is a famous uh, Hebrew scholar, writes this about that verse. He says, after saying, he says, Robert Alter says, sorry, I'm writing my, reading my notes. Robert Alter says this has double meaning. On the surface, it is referring to Benjamin's supposed crime, right, which was not even true. Benjamin didn't even do that crime. Later we find out. But he says it's a double meaning because at a deeper level, Judah is finally naming his sin against Joseph more than two decades earlier. That Joseph's trick has made Judah feel the weight and empathize with the very dark thing he did 20 years earlier, which is what sets him up to be able to offer his own life to help even save Benjamin, which is what sets you up for seeing that Joseph is really still alive in this incredible reunion. That is how Jesus works. That is how the gospel works. You see, so often what we try to do is we try to use our old methods in our present context. And, and Jesus will have none of that. And so what's going on is Judah had to be brought all the way to that core place before he could even begin to offer his life, which still wasn't enough, so that he could even see who Joseph is and accept this reality. That is what is. And they were melting when Joseph told them. In fact, in verse 4, it says of chapter 45, Come near to me, please. So they come near. I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And then Joseph goes on and on and on about how mad he is, right? No. What does he say? And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Jo what's happening there? Joseph oriented this, I'm going to use the word trick, to bring Judah and the brothers to this place where they could feel the weight of their sin. But when he reveals himself and they are dismayed, he's not interested in trying to make them feel bad. He wants them to feel grace and to feel mercy. The moment they experience the weight, his whole job, his whole desire is to say, let me bring you comfort. Let me bring you rescue. Let me tell you, you are safe. In fact, at the end of our passage, I just, you have to just envision this. He wants them to go bring their father back up to Egypt. And it says, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept. And we talked about that last week. This mutual folding in that's physical with the one who, the elder brother who rescued them, essentially Joseph. But then it says, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. We are to read that as if that exact event happened 10 additional times. With each brother, Joseph is weeping and holding and kissing. And it's, as, it's to say, you are home. You are rescued. 
You are here. That there is a new reality. You, you never knew. You never knew that this would happen, but the whole thing had this plan, and that's going to bring us to our final thought, is what can be. We talked about what is and how, we talked about the past and how that's changed by what is true now, that is we're saved, but what can be, what, what the future is, is equally as important because oftentimes in our Christian faith, I think we live out this idea that one day, someday, there's going to be something great, we don't know what it's going to be like, heaven, and so we live our lives here somewhat disconnected from that reality. We try to do the morals, we try to follow Jesus, but we don't see a connection. And yet Joseph is right away explaining the future to them. He tells them, here's the whole story of why it happened. Okay, there's a famine. There needed to be a rescue. God oriented it this way. But now he tells them what's going to happen. Bring in the future. You're going to go back, grab the entire family. Grab father, grab our kids, grab the wives, grab everybody, and you're going to bring this entire group to Goshen, and we're going to have a community, and we're going to flourish, and we're going to enjoy life together. Are you up for that? We're going to have redemption and renewal. I'm afraid that in my own life, and maybe many of our lives, we, we get our story out of order. We, we talk about salvation as if it's just us sort of being okay. Or being safe, or all these things. Great words, great ideas. But the redemption, the goal of redemption is to be back with our Heavenly Father, with our elder brother Jesus, in perfect community with our brothers and sisters. And the question I think that we have to ask is are we connecting the dots like Joseph did? Joseph is connecting the dots for his brothers. Here's the goal in the future, we're all together. Here's why the past happened. And here's the present. Are we willing to connect the dots? Are we drawing these things together? Are we willing to look at our lives and say, how can we have that future mindset break in presently? We talked about this before last week. I think it was 1 Corinthians 13. No, I know it's 1 Corinthians 13. I think it was last week. Let me get that better. But it's just this, I keep coming back to it mostly because I'm just so slow of heart. But you remember in 1 Corinthians 13 is just Paul. So the, the Corinthians are awful, okay? Can I just say that? They really are. And they're giving Paul a tough time. And they're following different people. And they're basically like, you're not, you're not smart enough. You don't, you're not eloquent enough. And um, so we figured out new ways to go about this. So Paul does a great job throughout the entire letter to bring them the gospel. And then here he is in chapter 13 saying, if I speak in the tongues of men and in angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so that I can even remove a mountain, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And I think part of what he's saying there is the old way, the way that Judah thought before Joseph was alive, the way we lived before we came to Christ, is I want things to, to make me feel better and act better and seem better in the kingdom of heaven. I want to have powers. I want to have gifts. The Corinthians are struggling with that. And Paul's like, you need love. That is everything. He even says a few verses later after describing love in a beautiful way, 
He says, love never ends. Like when we go to heaven, love is the the thing that's going to be present because Jesus is love. God is love. We will have nothing but just mutual love and glory for one another. That is where we're heading. And it's funny because oftentimes we read that and we think, that just sounds so hard. Do you ever feel that way? How do you do that? But yet, just make a quick jot a list of things you love and you feel pretty cool. Like, I love that. I love him and her and I love this. You know, love is pretty cool. Every single movie out there seems to be about it. I mean, right, every song. Love is glorious. We just aim it at the wrong thing and for the wrong purposes. And what Paul is revealing is if we could see Jesus as he is, we would love. Like, we would be overflowing in love. In fact, he says that. Right now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then we'll see him face to face. Right now, we know in part. What do we know in part? We know Jesus. We have the contours. We have the scriptures. We have the Holy Spirit. As believers, we just have the contours. We can't fully see him. One of the greatest tricks the devil plays is when people feel like, oh, I know who Jesus is. You know? No, you don't. We know things about him. We know parts of him. But we will get to heaven and it will be an infinite journey of knowing him more and more for the rest of eternity. And I just want you to know that when Judah and the brothers are sitting in this room with Joseph, they were sitting in the room with Joseph. They weren't, you understand, like, he didn't say, I'm Joseph, and then, like, he changed. Just simply said, I'm Joseph. And in that moment, their eyes were opened, and their lives changed forever. And the question is this, are we allowing the spirit, when we feel tugs of sin and tugs of of our past pulling us away, are we willing to say, Jesus, I want to see you freshly, and I'm willing to lay down all the things that I'm putting in the way of seeing you to just name and, and, and experience you? Are we willing to see him freshly? Do you want to know Jesus like that? Because Joseph reveals himself, but remember, it was after this, what I've been calling a trick. There are a lot of those things in our lives. Every third week we sing, I asked the Lord that I would grow. And, and then he made these things happen that were hard. And I'm asking, are we connecting the dots? The things in our lives that are stressing us out. The bitternesses in our lives. The, the, the methods we used that stem from our old selves. All these ways that we're trying to find life apart from Jesus. Are our opportunity, our present tense opportunity to realize, wait a minute, I'm not seeing Jesus right now. In my mind, he's just the governor who can give me grain. And the invitation is to, let, is to what, what does Judah have to say? Basically, I'm willing to die. And that is the call of discipleship. At every moment of repentance, what are we doing? We're coming, ideally, as Luther would urge, every morning, every day, every hour. But periodically we're coming to lay down our life and that is to substitute ourselves for all the things we thought we needed and it's at that place the spirit has brought us to that moment where the cross becomes real and Jesus becomes beautiful and we realize we have full life we are actually resurrected like Paul says I have both died and raised with Christ I'm no longer who I was I'm a new creation so my encouragement as we see this chapter is to do this 
let's examine all the ways we've lived in our present context out of our past methods. You know, what are all the things we did? For all those years, Judah and the brothers had to pretend they didn't kill Joseph. They had to keep that dark, dark secret. How are we keeping those secrets? How are we living presently based on our own efforts, our own charm, our own giftedness, our own methods of of manipulate, whatever those things are, we are being invited every week, every day, every time we come to the Lord, we are being invited to say, I'm guilty. The, the silver cup is in the bag. And quite frankly, it's far worse than that. I was there in a way, theologically, with Adam, wasn't I? Weren't you? Right there at the beginning, when we looked and said, God, you are not enough. I was there mysteriously at the cross, and we looked and said, crucify him. And we are doing that at all times when we are clinging to these old methods for life. And what, what this passage, I believe, passage is inviting us to do is go, wait a minute, Jesus has the better way. And so just as we close, I want to remind you from the words of Romans 8, where Paul says, what shall we say then of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, he closes out this beautiful chapter with the fact that we are more than conquerors, that nobody can speak condemnation over you. You are in Christ. But just a few verses earlier, he says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And what we find in this passage is what Paul is teaching is that same thing I think we're learning from this Joseph story that all the things that happen to us and the sins we commit are all being used to sanctify us for the glory of God. We must repent. We run to the cross, but they are still mysteriously used to bring about his kingdom and his glory. And that's who he's calling to himself as a people who believe that, who will live that out, who will love one another who will confess when they are struggling to love one another and ask the Spirit to give them love and affection for one another because that is the community and the reality that God is creating. Let us pray. Jesus, we are so good at practicing religion and playing at this thing. But Lord, I can tell you, I cannot come to that place of repentance without your Spirit bringing me there. And so the prayer I think I would like to pray on behalf of all of the saints in the room is that your spirit would teach us to come empty-handed to your cross and name that we need you, confess that we have sinned, that we, we try to replace you. We try to do life apart from you, just like our father and mother, Adam and Eve. Teach us to long to be in your presence under your rule with your grace and mercy that we would feel the forgiveness and understand the truth of your gospel and that we would even do eagerly bring the things that hinder us, bring the, the burdens and the hurts and the frustrations to your, to your feet, Jesus. That not only when we come to Christ the first time, but every time we come to your cross, we would bring all the ways that we try to perfect ourselves in the flesh. Holy Spirit, will you revive individually and corporately your people? In your name we pray. Amen.